Dieser Originals. Trailblazers. Hello and welcome to the new season of Trailblazers. In these strange and separated times, it falls to me to guide you into each episode of the new season. And this first episode is really interesting, given what's happening right now in the world with Black Lives Matter movement. Our first guest, Norman Jay, shares a deeply personal journey with us about his experience growing up as a black man in London and the racism and violence that he saw and endured himself. It's these very experiences that motivated him to become the biggest voice and the human embodiment of the legendary Notting Hill Carnival. Norman spoke to us in December 2019, before lockdown and before George Floyd's tragic death, talking about his early years growing up, which really portrays with great clarity how racism has been a systematic problem for decades. Please listen to the conversation in the context of when it was recorded, in an atmosphere of love and appreciation, and we hope you take that love and appreciation with you wherever you go. We all enjoyed this conversation so much that we didn't even finish his incredible life in the allotted time, and we all look forward to part two. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy the very special first episode of Trailblazers, season three. Trailblazers, Norman Jay. Today's trailblazer is a true DJ legend and super selector with an A that turned rare groove into a thing and inspired us all to get our fingers dusty in Notting Hill and Soho record shop bargain basements. How many DJs can say they've had a medal pinned on them by Her Majesty the Queen and it's surely only a matter of time before he feels the touch of her sword on his shoulder? <laughs> and, and, and what, fingers crossed, and what started, and what started as little more than a path in his back garden turned into the biggest carnival in the world and you can't say you've been to the Notting Hill Carnival unless you've seen the good time sound system and the man behind it Norman Jay most excellent mm. order of the British Empire <laughs> Um, welcome to Trailblazers. Oh, what an intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, fully deserved, man. Oh, fully mate. deserved. And I should yeah. I should say Soho Radio stalwart, yeah. as, we, yes. as we are in Soho mm, right absolutely. now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. London, so, my favourite city ever. Yes. Of course, and, mm. and of course where you were born, and we'll, we'll get yeah, to that, but sure. I'm going to throw over to my, my colleague and friend Nick, who's going who's to fire the first, uh, the, the, intro, the intro question at you. Yeah, Norman, thanks for joining good us, man. Good to see you, Nick. It's good to see yes. you again, because yeah. we bump into each other from time to time, don't yeah. we? Yeah. We, we, uh, we even bumped into each other in a fish and chip shop once, <laughs> I re- do you remember that? Not too far, West London, yeah? yeah. <laughs> um, so it's great, it's great to have you here, and, and, and one of the things that I like to ask people who've been mm. in the, 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 the game a while um, is, is really, you know, looking, looking across that, that depth of, of kind of activity. How do you keep the enthusiasm, the engagement? How do you keep doing what you do? Ah, yeah, there's a question, Nick. I think by, especially at my age now, um, I'm in my early 60s now, but by being true to myself, right. um, never followed fashion, Right. Uh, music fashion. Mm. Um, acknowledged it, swam alongside it, played alongside it, but never really uh, kind of let it dominate um, my music yes. thinking, my music playing. Mm. Um, because, you know, it, it's, it's a, 
I guess, a late 20th century construct, the DJ set. Mm. Um, thankfully, I came before that. I liked what I liked. Mm. Uh, so the real job for me was persuading people in front of me to like what I liked. Mm. Yeah, the, mm. that was where my headspace was at, and I guess remains to this day. Mm. Mm. And and is taking risks central to that, or not really? Because you go, I'm not taking a risk, I like this tune. Yeah. Mm, um, you know, so. If you've got to quantify it or call it something, yes, it would be taking risks. In the early days, it was definitely taking risks. Right. Um, because the, the rules of the DJ game, as you probably might recall, Rick, mm. were, were quite rigid. Mm. Um, well, remind, remind us Well, what... you know, I'm, I'm going back to, to the mid-'80s. Right. Uh, or probably even earlier, a little bit before that, yeah. when um, all the music styles were strictly defined. Got it. You were into soul yeah. or you were into reggae yeah. or you were a new romantic you know or yeah. you were into punk rock okay um, it was so tribal wasn't it, it was very tribal but I, the tribal mm. the tribal thing in my opinion was a good thing always a good thing because it wasn't just music the mm. music tribalism went hand in hand with the with the attitude to life tribalism with the political tribalism mm. and the fashion or, or dressing up mm. tribalism so, yes which is an inherent part of particularly British working class culture, which I've always loved. Mm. I mean, I'm 62 now. I was too young to be a mod first time around, but remember them really well because of the older kids that lived in my street mm. and the fact that these white kids were digging black music. Mm. Weird. You know, white kids are supposed to like rock, pop and the Beatles. Mm. But I can remember even as a young kid on my street, you know, um, the... The scooter mods would have been probably mid-teens, late-teens, mm. would come and ask my dad about certain records. Mm. You know, they would come and they'd hear, you know, Blue Beaten Scar playing in my dad's front room on the ground <laughs> and go, Norman, ask your dad, what's that? <laughs> you know, so it was this kind of interest, you know, black music from as long as... As young as I was, I always understood that black music always provided the soundtrack to white working class sort of tribalism, stylism, mm. everything. Mm. Um, you know, even the jazz records that we played in our house, you know, we used to yeah. ring, ring the bell for some of, the, some of the, the mods and stuff. And this went on, you know, all through my sort of formative years, yeah. through the 60s, towards the late 60s, when I was old enough to go and buy records and play records. And I remember... You know, so we took it for granted. You know, music was just a thing yeah. in, in all black households, especially in ours. Yeah. And when my white and Asian mates would come round, you know, off the state, we'd introduce them to reggae and soul. Yeah. And kind of convert them. Yeah. But it, uh, you know, it was at its time. You know, that that's what was happening then. Yeah. You know, there was an eagerness um, for for those kids to get into. You know forms of black music. Well, well let's let's dig, we'll dig into this a bit more now because you've you've segued us very nicely into the to these early days, and then we'll come back to the the issue of genre hopping, risk taking, yeah, yeah. and yeah. and how how the DJ world has changed yeah. since you know from the eighties uh, and onwards. So so where geographically where did you grow up? 
I was a Notting Hill boy. Right. I'm born and bred. Right. Um, well, we called it the Grove, Abbey yeah. Grove. Yeah. Notting Hill is what the posh people called it. Right. Um, and where were you? Were you at the top of the Goldbourn Road end of it? Yeah, or you were... the Goldbourn Well, I'm trying to remember the name of the street that I was born on. The Paddington General Hospital used to have an annex just off the Harrow Road. It's no longer there now where the police station used to be I can't even remember the name the street's still there it's still cobbled but the end of that road I was born yeah and I was just across the road from Meanwhile Gardens oh right yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. um, uh, and my family members have been in and around that area since 1955 yes yes um, since the Windrush I guess yeah well my mum and dad came seven eight years after the Windrush but they're still considered part of the Windrush generation Mm. um uh, when that area was <laughs> so run down, poverty-stricken, deprived, it was proper slum. Um, and it, so in 1957, when I was born, my dad moved out. 1959, we moved to Acton. But it was just it was three miles down the road. But it was very... Uh, within easy access of, of the Grove. So yeah. all my friends were there, all my family was there. So I spent all my formative time there. Yeah. Every time outside of the door was back to the Grove, playing yeah. football, you know, playing on bomb sites, yeah. um, and just, you know, up and down the market. In those days, you know, we knew all the traders that worked in the market. All the traders knew my mum and dad. It was a real proper, proper community. Even though it was a really tough, rough area, it was the, the, in those days, I'm talking sort of early 60s, 50s and mid-60s, um, it was an area as hard as nails. Mm. Um, I mean, even some of my contemporaries today um, were born or used to live in that area until there was the slum clearance in the late 60s. People like DJ Terry Farley, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, Robert Elms. Right, right, right. <laughs> We're all from that era. Yes. So from, from that square mile. So mm. we, we, we know it well. Um, mm. You know, within a few hundred metres of Grenfell. You mm. know, Grenfell, terrible yeah. what happened there. You know, my mm. dad's domino club used to be in the basement. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. Of there. And my uncle still lives across the road from it. Wow. You know, he's been there 50 odd years. But, you know, that, that was, those are my formative years. That's where I lived, that's where I played. That's where I was exposed to music uh, and um, really proud of that fact, actually. <laughs> mm. yeah, yeah, I picked up some vibes there. Yeah. We moved there when I was 19, in 1967. Mm. And yeah, I lived ah. in Kensington Park Road right. in, in 19, from 1967 until, wow. I guess, the early 70s. So you'd have been there when they were clearing um, all the slums there well, yeah, for, I, to build a Westway. Obviously, I don't, re- I don't yeah, remember, I it, remember but, it, but, uh, you know, I, I, sort of, I remember. Yeah, yeah, I bet. You've got a few years on me, Norman. <laughs> but I certainly remember, you know, losing my mum in the hustle and bustle of the market. Yeah. And that, and that was my first ever wave of panic that yeah. I felt yeah. was in that, in that neighbourhood. But there was a real vibe about it yeah. we, we've got something else in common actually I didn't realise but I used to live in Kensington Park Road oh yeah yeah but that was start of XL it was kind of yeah, like yeah. late late yeah. 80, 89 ish yeah, yeah. I was in that's when I was there but anyway we, we digress <laughs> so you, you, you said yeah so you were surrounded by music yeah what, what kind yeah so what kind of stuff were you hearing well um, it would have been um, rhythm and blues yeah uh, my dad was a big fan of um, South American Tawana Brass. Yeah. Um, 
He was an everyman. He liked everything, anything that was good, anything that was quality. Yeah. Um, was he involved in, in music at all no, as a DJ? No. But no. Uh, my dad's claim to fame is that um, he bought on higher purchase <laughs> HP, yeah. he bought a top-of-the-range radiogram, not the blouse spot that everyone talks about. The, the blouse spot's what the commoners had. Right, um, right. All the Jamaicans had a blouse spot. Okay. Or the blue spot. But my dad okay. saved up and got a bush, top of the range. It was, one, it was the first stereo radiogram. Right. Um, with twin speakers in proper stereo. Wow, okay. And we weren't allowed near that right. for years. My dad's <laughs> proud and joy, but... Yeah. Once he bought that, he went out and he bought records every week. Yeah. Whether they were pop records or... They would have been mostly sort of um, the big pop records of the day. Yes. You know, Fats Domino. Right. Uh, um, Ray Charles, of which he was a big fan. Yeah. Um, he was also a big fan of that UK jazz guy. Um, not Ronnie Scott, so contemporary of Ronnie Scott's at the time. I always remember his name, but his name will come to me at some point. So we always had a lot of jazz. Kenny Ball? Kenny No, Kenny not, not, not Kenny Ball, Kenny not Lynch, Kenny sorry. Lynch. I remember Kenny Lynch. Yeah. Um, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But, yeah, uh, and we also had, you know, the earliest records brought over from Jamaica. Right. Um, because in those days, everyone presumed that if you were black, you were from Jamaica, right. which wasn't the case because my family, my mum and dad came from um, the Grenadines, from Grenada, right. ah. a smaller island, yeah. just like Trinidad, just like Barbados. Um, but um, the, the, the music of the small islands was essentially Calypso, which we'd had Calypso in our house since day dot, you know, right. Lord Kitchener, yeah. all of that. This is the music that reminded them of home, reminded them of their cultural identity, you know, mm. moving to another country. But mm. this was the music from home. Mm. Um, and then in the early 60s, we're beginning to get the first um, sort of blue beat records or records from Jamaica. Mm. Um, before they kind of called it Scar. Yeah. Um, but it was just records from Jamaica, you know, black music from Jamaica. So we were very privileged in our house mm. um, because my dad would go and buy those records on, on the Portobello Road. Mm. Um, and at that time, um, my paternal grandfather was alive then, um, living in America. And I can remember from about 1960 to about 1964, my grandfather used to come every year on a trip to, to visit our family and bring the top 10 um, R&B records. Nice. <laughs> um, what a treat yeah. when he turned up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because he knew that my dad had bought a gram. Yeah. Um, and we'd, we'd have all these records. So we were surrounded by Great. records in our house. Uh -huh. um, and then when I was about, probably about four or five um, because I was showing such an interest in, in the radiogram that my dad let me... Have a go. Have a go. <laughs> and that was the first time you'd, yeah. you'd picked up either. a... So, yeah. so what was <laughs> the... Could you remember the first <laughs> no, record? That, no, so yeah. they, they were 78s because my dad's gram, it played 78s, yeah. LPs, long players, yeah. and it played 45s. Mm. And we didn't have that many 45s, but my dad had stacks of 78s, yeah. which were brittle. And we yeah. That's because they'd break. We'd, yeah. Me and my brother, we'd break them by accident. But Dad was always cool. And then, sort of, would have been about, how old would I have been? About five, four or five. So it would have been about 62, 63. Records were coming in. Final seven inches, my dad would, would, would buy them. Because all the family 
parties would be held at my mum and dad's house, which is great. Mm. Um, all weddings, all christenings, all Caribbean family gatherings, because mm. they were like the the patriarchs, mm. you know, from from the islands there. So everything was held at our house. Mm. So our house always had parties mm. and always had music. Mm. Um, didn't it'd be years before I realised this you know the significance and the symbolism of that and mm. how important it would be wow. for me yes. later on but that was my grounding and can you remember a a record that from that time that uh, reminds you of those early days and your parents yeah. parties and um, that really kind of uh, that made you think, I remember oh, yeah, several um, like yesterday Chubby Trekker The Twist uh, I remember um, Let's Twist Again you know because we always um, had the latest dance crazes in America in our house that all the black people were doing, which, which was great. Um, mm. um, Marvin Gaye, wow. um, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You, I always remember. Uh, we were big fans of Aretha, Dionne Warwick, mm. um, so Fat, Fats Domino. Um, Can we pick one to have a, a listen to now? Uh, yeah, well, like, did one affect you sort of emotionally any more than yeah, the other ones? I think How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. Mm. Um, Marvin Gaye mm. yeah I think that's from about 1962 or 63 fantastic yeah. what a choice the master yeah. selector let's do it <laughs> let's do it Trailblazers Norman Jay. I want to stop and thank you baby I want to stop So you're so you're growing up in West London, and uh, you're you're absorbing music through your your father's incredible pride and joy radiogram mm, and, and the radio. And, I was an avid fan of the radio, right? And you, yeah. you so you had a little transistor that you that you listened to and yeah. stuff, and 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 uh, and I and the, so then you, I guess you know you must have started going to school there, and, yeah. And then suddenly you would then be fed a lot more by all of the kids around you so t- tell us about yeah, your school well, days what my, my, my school years because um it, my mates really weren't into to music like i was strange enough because i was what you would call a geek yeah you, you know i was into records when no one else around me was of we course. all loved football we loved girls we, we loved um and we loved the music we heard on the radio because i was a big fan of you know, obviously Top of the Pops, but before that, Ready, Steady, Go. Um, any black artist that appeared on the television in the 1960s, you know, our whole family would be there to watch and support. And I remember, you know, seeing you know, the Motown reviews, you know, watching, you know, the Four Tops and the Supremes and the Temptations, you know, you know grainy black and white on our grainy black and white TV set, you know, which was always jumping. We had to keep mm. banging it to stop it from DER. Um, because um, in those days, there were so few black acts, hardly any. Yeah. So it was a big deal. I mean, we take it for granted now, but I'm talking sort of early, mid-60s. I can remember seeing Millie Small singing My Boy Lollipop in an animated fashion. Um, and, of course, David Rodigan was watching that and being yeah, inspired yeah. at the same well, time. Well, it was a huge pop hit, but, you know, that wasn't the original version. You know, uh, yeah. You know, um, a girl called Barbie Gay that sung it. Um, a Jamaican girl, you know, 
10 years before. Yeah, and of course, it's, this is very profound because it's mm. just occurring to me that, of course, it was only music that in that avenue, that, that in that forum context, that you would see black people on the telly. Yeah, because, of course, there was no yeah. journalists, yeah. New re- news readers. They, you know, your, your, your culture wasn't represented in outside any way of except our, outside of music. Yeah, outside of, of black family gatherings, you know, the, the music was virtually unknown but I mean I was too young so I didn't know I mean with the benefit of hindsight and history I I now know that you know a lot of that early sort of black jazz and rhythm and blues was adopted by the first incarnation of the mod culture Hmm. they they were because I can remember my dad talking about uh, I can't even remember their names now but that certain sound system men would be keeping a dance in a house you know, in Notting Hill Gate or playing in a club in the West End. But because my dad worked nights and he was quite the studious sort, he wouldn't go to those things, but he was always invited. He knew on the on the Caribbean grapevine that these dances were being kept mm. um, <laughs> and in, in, in certain places. And, you know, the rent parties were going on, which we call blues parties. Yeah. And they became uh, more and more, they were frequented by um, white middle classes, who were then inviting these guys to come and play in um, areas like Paddington, which were well-to-do, you know, in muse parties in Paddington, uh, in, um, was it not Holland Park, uh, the other place out there where, where Whiteleys used to be, Queensway. Queensway, yeah. And then they gradually, you know, into the West End, into Carnaby Street. Right, exactly. You know, um, and in, in, into the West End, and these were sort of DJ selectors, you know, of my dad's generation, you know, who, who were suddenly being asked to come and play the new style of ska and reggae, and suddenly white people were getting hip to music that we, all, we, we, we knew. But it was great. But at the time, I didn't realise that outside of our, our little family bubble, we had no idea, you know. It was only when I read about it and talked to sort of people, you know, 10, 15 years later that realised, you know, this music was a soundtrack that was to a generation even before me. Mm. So. Do, do you remember the first time that you went and saw a proper DJ play in a club uh, or a school? It, yeah, uh, it, it, would been, it would have been you know, uh, a, 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 a youth club, probably youth about club. 1969 or 1970. Okay. Did yeah. that impact on you the first time? Uh, you saw? N- no, no. Okay. Uh, the, the DJ <laughs> concert meant absolutely nothing. Right. Um, you go there for the... I went for the music because I was a geek. Yeah. I went for the music and girls secondary. Yeah. But the youth club <laughs> is a place to, you know, get girls. Yeah. And do, um, for a lot of the black boys of my generation, because we were into the music, we used to peacock. We could do all the dances. <laughs> do the watutsi. Yeah. Do the slip and slide. You learn all the new dances that came from America. And that's the only way you could impress. Peacocking, um, yeah, I love yeah. that. <laughs> you know, and they, you know, even like today. You know, it spawned that generation of jazz dancers. We'd, we've always done, even I was relatively good. Mm. Uh, okay, you know, long before I migrated to behind the decks, I was on the dance floor. Yeah. I'd served my apprenticeship. I'd been a dancer for years and years and years. And, so, how, and how interesting that you saw no relationship between no. the music and the DJ. It no. was the music and the snogging or the music and the That's dancing. Absolutely. And the clubs and the fashion play. To, yes, of yeah, course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what was, what were you me. dressed in at this time? Uh, I aspired to be everything, but couldn't really afford anything because um, uh, 
I got a paper round when I was underage. You had to be 13 to have a paper round. I had a paper round when I was 10 and 11. Mm. Um, so I had money to um, for my three habits, <laughs> which were, you know, and, and I could only sort of service those habits alternatively to buy clothes, to buy records, to go to football. Yes. I couldn't and, afford to do all three. Um, and I'd go through phases where it'd be all about clothes and then all about records and then all about football but it's funny the, the music was still just put on the back burner temporarily it was always about the records I'd never felt complete or, or happy till I'd gone and as you'd know Nick as a mm. vinyl junkie mm. once you owned the tune that you, in your oh, head yeah it's great isn't yeah. It? yeah yeah and who was your style icon at that went at that absorb absorptive age were you were you dressed like Jimi Hendrix or like no, Marvin Gaye uh, or no, like, like yeah a bit of uh, Marvin first black mod um Sidney Pottier Sidney <laughs> Pottier yeah because Classy. all of those black guys always look sharp even Muhammad Ali yeah. you know um and the look was imitated and got kind of like the rude boy look. Oh, okay. You know, but it was always, you know, you look at photographs of Curtis Mayfield or the Impressions in the 60s, you know, their mods before mods was... Was a thing. So was did, a thing, yeah. Did you have a pork pie hat and a yeah. And, and yeah. tonic suit or uh, whatever? Not so much the hat. I wasn't into hats then. I had the haircuts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you guys called it skinhead. We called it skiffle. <laughs> with, with side part, close yes. crop. Um and the, the first sort of expensively branded piece of clothing one could own, especially for my generation, was a pair of genuine Levi's. Yeah. You know, Levi's became a thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I'm I'm keen to hear a bit more though about you absorbing DJ culture. I want right, to know yeah, what yeah. sort of clubs you might have first slid into as a yeah. 15 year old. I, or... I can remember all of that, Nick, like it was yesterday. Um, started off going to. Um, uh, the local youth clubs in and around Grove, in and around Chiswick and Acton. Um, they'd be normally sort of Sunday night affairs. Um, and an older mate of ours, he was like five, six years older than me, Barry Stone. He was like a pop DJ in the late 60s. Mm. But he had a taste and a love of, of black music, you know, in amongst um, the Small Faces records that he played, which I loved. Mm. Um uh, and they're sort of mid to late 60s um, pop bands, which I, I love to this day. I still play their music. Um, you know, he would slip in the odd Aretha. He would slip in the odd Temptations. But the slower stuff, um, the love songs, mm. so you could get your snogging sessions. You know? Al Green, <laughs> the Shy Lights, uh, the Detroit Spinners, you know, all the stuff that I still love and I still play mm -hmm. on, on the radio. Mm -hmm. um, and he'd play stuff like like, like that, mm. which kind of attracted me to go um, when Barry was playing. Mm. I'd 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 go there because we, you know, he knew what we liked. Yeah, and that's the first hallmark of a really good DJ. You know, acknowledge your crowd, please your crowd. Mm. Um, mm. You They've know. paid their money to yeah be entertained, haven't yeah, they? Absolutely, you know. And he would play, you know, the latest reggae of, of, of the day would be like. Liquidator, yeah, you know, Dave and Anson Collins, all the chart reggae, mm. um, which I loved because um, by then, you know, I wasn't into the deeper end of the reggae. I loved all the the pop trojan stuff with strings um, because I've always personally, as a music taste, preferred um, string and wind over 
horns. Mm. Right. Um, well, let's play one of those Trojan records. You're, you're sitting there, Norman, with, yeah. the, with a, a lovely orange enamel Trojan Records <laughs> um, badge on your jacket. Yeah. So it would be churlish of us <laughs> yeah. not to represent that great label well, with I'm a not tune sure now. If it, if it was on Trojan then, it's so long ago. But um, Bob and Marcia, to be young, gifted and black. Mm. Trailblazers. Norman J. Young, gifted and black. a hugely inspirational record for me and it would take me about two or three years probably longer than that to realise that the record was first done by Nina Simone mm. <laughs> because mm. we never had any way of knowing Yeah, you have to understand back in those days um you had to take at face value and believe what you were told what you were read because a lot of those artists then never for whatever reason, never credited the original black artist. So all through the 70s, uh, it was an amazing learning curve for me to think of quite a lot of the pop records that I loved as a kid growing up, which was hugely important to me, that I subsequently learned that they were cover versions of these un unknown artists. I'm like, damn. Mm. But then when I went to... My first trip to America in 79, I set about trying to find all of those original records of, um, you know, I love the small faces, always loved the small faces stuff. Mm. Um, what's name a couple of their big tunes, Nick? You know, big mod anthems. Um, they were actually written, they were cover versions, right? Of yeah, of of oh, there's a long, yeah, a there's long, a, a litany of them, yeah, but yeah. I mean. And, and it was that process of discovery yeah. which was really driving me. I, I loved it, you know, crate digging, you know, yeah. 79, 80. I'm in New York, years before that became a thing. I knew um, Northern Soul people were going over, but they were looking for different records to me. Yeah. Mm. So, and the advantage that I had then was that I was able to go, being black, go into the, some of the darkest places in and around New York mm. where angels feared to tread. Because <laughs> in most barbershops, um, well, I won't say most, it's wrong to say most. Some of the barbershops were a front for drugs, right. whatever. So to have this veneer of legitimacy, they sold records, they right. sold clothes. Yeah. You go in the back of any barbershop, there's a record rack. <laughs> yeah. um, and the records would be there for so long, so dusty, 50 cents, 25 cents. But if you picked up too many, the guy in the shop, would, he's on a hustle, you know. He'd look, suddenly he'd go, $10. <laughs> 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 and then you put him back. Okay, you're like, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. And then you come back in the next day when someone's in there and you, you get him again. Right. Um, or if you buy something else, you can take the records, they give them to you because nobody wanted them. Um, but, you know, that was when I was doing uh, uh, much later in the 80s. But well, it, yeah. back in those days, yeah, um, I didn't have a DJ hero. No. Um, 
So when you were when you were going to New York in in uh, the late seventies, yeah, and you early were 80s. early eighties, yeah. mm-hmm. and and you're you're buying all these records. Were you still a collector? Yes, I was a collector. So you hadn't so. made that crossover to DJ. No, not not yet. And so mm-hmm. when did you when what was the spark that led you to think? Oh, hang on a minute! Like I've got all these records because normally you just have all the records. And so somebody says, "Why don't you DJ?" Is that what happened? No, the spark was um, having this latent dormant ambition to play at the carnival ah of course not your carnival not clubs I didn't aspire to be a club DJ because black DJs weren't being hired we weren't in clubs you know in my circle you know all through the 70s you know um, the DJ came or was part of the sound system sound system was first which boasted this DJ this MC this selector and it was always the sound system Mm. Um, and I Go to Carnival, uh, Carnival 76, it's well documented. It was the first time, a huge eruption of violence there. Grove burned for three nights. Um, yeah, I was a frontline soldier in all of that, witnessed it firsthand, was part of it. Wow, what was, Not what proud, was, everybody, but what was everybody pissed off about? The racism and the oppression and the clamping down of, of our rights. Basically, the establishment at the time, uh, with the you know, the arm of the state using the police to basically tell you that you're black, you've got no place here and you will do as you're told and we will be able to do what we want to you as we feel when we want. And leading up to that big riot in August, that hot summer of 76, heatwave summer, never forget God, it. it. so hot, yeah. Yeah, that heatwave summer of 76, there was a rise um, in unpublicised deaths of black youths in London um, police stations. In custody, yeah. In, cu- in custody, unexplained deaths. Um and there was a couple, and there was one in Nottingdale Police Station, which Nottingdale was dread. Everybody knew Nottingdale was the home of the SPG, the Special Patrol Group. Right, yes, um, I remember that. Yeah, who were the dark side of the Met Police, who took no prisoners and basically did what they liked. And I'm especially proud that I was part of that generation of youth. I would have been 16, 17 then, yeah, that summer I would have been 18. Um, young, disenfranchised, angry, and was ready to confront them to put a stop to it. So, yeah, August, Bank Holiday weekend, 1976. Yeah, it erupted, um, partly because of an unexplained death of a black youth in there. But in the run-up, and we know now that that was a a tactic that the Mets still use at, at Carnival, you know, um, in the run-up to, to the Carnival, basically flex the muscle a little bit, let the youths know <laughs> that they don't run things, we do. Mm-hmm. And and it was at that particular time, that summer, where I suffered my first real direct racism. I've been lucky, you know, maybe it's because of my attitude, um, to life and to people I never hand on heart and I've said this in many interviews I never really suffered racism not on the level that some of my peers and contemporaries did 
you know i never i have to say hand on heart i never really did but there was one occasion uh i don't know if i illustrate that in my book but i'll, I'll be brief there was one illustration where i've come out of my house i'm just about to go out got my duffel bag walked down the road for my mum's it's a Saturday evening, about seven, eight o'clock, you know, in the summer, really hot, nobody about. I'm waiting at the bus stop. Panda car pulls up and it's just a sixth sense. I just knew he was going to stop and say something across the road. Mm. So I'm waiting at the bus stop. He's pulled up across the road, wound down the window. And, and it was just, well, I can't repeat what he said to me. Right. <laughs> the N-word. Yeah. You black this, you black that. Da, da, da. And I was like, Whoa. And you're just and saying there at the bus down, stop. Like he you... wound down the window, drove about 50 yards down the road, done a U-turn and came back. And my heart started thinking, my God. And he got out, more abused, grabbed me, bent my arm, nearly choking me, put me in the back of the car. And I can't believe what's happening to me. And yeah. I'm going, just you went into a carnival. That's all I could say in my defence. And it was a case of, you threatening me, da 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 and he drove me for about 10 minutes towards the police station. You're getting nicked for the... I'm like, oh. And there's no one around to witness this. Yeah. And as we get outside the police station, he tells me to get out, get on my way. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm dazed. And the proper yeah. state of shock thinking. And all I can think of, carnival cannot come quick enough yeah. for me. And for someone like me that I had no dealings with the police, never been in trouble, for something like that, when I tell my mate, this happened to me. But and this is the problem that we had. Our parents still didn't believe the police were do doing this to us. Yeah. You must have done something. And this was the general thinking. And this is why there was this schism between the black youth and the, you know, the parents' generation. They did not believe that this thing was happening to us on a daily basis, every day of the week, where the police were doing this to us with impunity. So I'm thinking, just you wait till carnival. So I get to carnival, I'm ready. Like thousands of us, we're ready. And then when the old bill came with their short sleeves and their buttons, we came with our dustbin lids, bricks and bottles, and we mixed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they came off worst. Yeah, of course, because um, that happened to you. That must have happened to hundreds of other kids, did, you know, you know along and, the Grove and, and but, everywhere. You know, I was like a cardboard warrior, really, because for me, it was all a big game. It was a chance to get my own back to there, but it quickly escalated out of control. And from being sort of brazen and at the front of it all, I was really scared because I saw sights there. You know, I saw the mob mentality. It dawned on me in those hours what mob, uncontrolled mob mentality was really Yeah, like. you were in a war zone. Proper, you know. If you, you could look it up on YouTube. Look, you know, I remember pictures Grove of Grove burned for three days yeah. and nights. Cars, you know, I houses. news footage from then. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I was in the middle of all of that, and so was Don Letts, actually. But I don't think Don was closer to where I was because I was very angry, very confrontational at the front. Yeah. Um, Mm. And ready to rumble. Gosh, was there a <laughs> uh, is there an angry record that that is there a record that kind of defines yeah, that yeah. time? Um, like, uh, to, I think to, it was that Police and Thieves. Yeah. Murphy. The, the Murphy. original. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yes, that, that's uh, got to happen. Boy, that's... I just remember that when all the sound systems switched off, that tune just kept ringing. It was like a clarion call. Um, and then it was all about self-preservation. How am I getting out of here? Because um, the youth had set up 
burning cars and, and burning wood and barricades so that they couldn't, the police couldn't get in, <laughs> but we couldn't get out. Yeah. And we knew that because of what happened, whoever they caught might end up, you know, so in the hands of special, yeah. and they mm. will wreak their revenge. Well, let's 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 draw a line under let's that. Let's the move, wow. shall we? <laughs> yeah, let's, but it, let's but it play. was a period in time that yeah. needed to happen because yeah. the, the law got changed after that, and it made the police look at how they treated black youth. And uh, sadly, today it's slipping back mm. in, into that. We've learned no lessons from forty years ago. Well, we are. Well, well let's not get un- into politics now. Yeah. But we are. Yeah, it seems we are sliding back. To, it definitely feels more like the seventies now yeah. than it ever has done. Mm. And you know, well, your uh, testament to that. I, you were well, around, I, you know, yeah. I, had, I had bricks thrown at me and yeah. told to, to f off home and all mm. that. So, um, mm. so let's draw a line at that. Yeah. Let's listen to Junior Marvin, and uh, and come out the other side uh, with some positivity. Happy. <laughs> Trailblazers, Norman J. Police and thieves in the street. Fight of the nation with their guns and ammunition. Junior Mervyn, Police and Thieves. The soundtracks, the soundtrack that the, the riot at mm. uh, the, the three-day mm. riot at, mm. at uh, and beyond in in Notting Hill in, in the hot summer of 1976. But from the bad times, let's let's look at now the good times. So because of course you you wanted to play at your beloved yeah, at street party. Yeah, you know. I wanted to play at the carnival because at that time um, there was no sounds no soul boy sound systems at carnival. It was all um, Reggae, calypso, soca, but no black American music, no mm. black British music. So in 1979, I just got back from New York, uh, my first trip to New York, loved it, come back with a million records and really set about thinking, I, I'm going to, I want to get my sound into into carnival because that was the only route open to me you know I, I couldn't go to a club and go listen can I do a warm up for you can I do this there was a couple of black teachers around at the time who shall remain nameless um, who were just treated so badly as fodder and I went you know what they will never ever do that to me I will never be one of those you know I'm going to play our music to our people on my own terms our way and our only vehicle that w- we had you know no one's going to open up and give us a club mm. you know just wasn't done but for two well in those days it was three four days yeah at carnival before they regulated it that was the only platform that we had for music and artistic expression mm. you know all the budding um, black DJs and sound systems you never heard of for 11 and a half months of the year but two weeks at carnival it was like a blossom this is our time to shine this is our time you've got to grab your moment so so the, the first time you played at carnival was there any organisation oh no it was, you, you literally just it was proper wild bam, west Rick. Yeah. just, just <laughs> stick the speakers here listen it was survival of the fittest right you know, the loudest yeah you get there the crucial thing was um, where you could get power. Okay. Yeah, power dictated where you played. Right. Uh, so you find any house um, or persuade anybody, as long as you can plug the amps in. Yeah, you got to <laughs> yeah. work in. Uh, so, so was this you working in tandem with your, your brother, Joey, yeah. to 
deliver your first? Yeah, because we'd, we'd, we'd had the sound since 1975, Good Times, or Great Tribulation as it originally was, yeah. played locally, played in around Grove, Ealing, Acton, Chiswick for mm. years, little sound clashes, mm. building up a little following, um, but not playing any soul or anything. I used to go and support my brother, as you know, one would those mm. days, you know, and, and then Good Times quickly became the pride of of Acton or the area got a cool little following but I always harboured you know an ambition because it was an ambition to go and play at Carnival be the first soul boy right first soul sound to go and play at Carnival so um, just got back from New York 1979 thinking just need to talk to Joe we'll go up there on Thursday night if necessary <laughs> because you go up there blag a, sub, blag a spot and then you can plug in and play uh, and I think when I got there in 1979, we'd, my brother was playing out somewhere. I went to Carnival on the Friday in the rain, scouting out of place to play, but all the spots were taken. Yeah. It was like every 10 feet, there was a sound system thinking, oh, God. So, but that was a blessing in disguise that we didn't play the first year, 79, because looking back, I know we weren't ready. By 1980, we were ready and organised, had the music, We'd had twin Citronic decks when all the other sound systems only had one turntable. Yeah. We broke all the rules, all the traditions. So I've gone up there scouting up uh, on Cambridge Gardens because we used to live on Cambridge Gardens many years ago, my mum and dad said. And it was just by fate. I mean, my mum and dad live, still live in number 37 Allison Road. And I looked at number 37 um, Cambridge Gardens and there was a low parapet wall and I just I don't know suddenly came, this is where we're going to set up and I remember knocking on the door and there was a few sort of hippies and everything and I was ready just to go listen can we buy the power and then I quickly realised it was a squat they were squatting in there it's a housing thing and I just told the guy instead of asking I told the guy listen we're plugging in here tomorrow. Is it all right to have the sound? And he just sort of, yeah, all right, you could plug in. And I, I should have kept my mouth shut, but I was so surprised that he said yes. I said, listen, we'll pay you 50p, which is a lot of money, and we'll give you a crate of party servants. <laughs> <laughs> so you can have your party in the house. So I think six or seven o'clock the next morning, this is a working day morning, Carnival hasn't started. We're up there. Managed to get gather the troops, nick my old man's car, his old Cortina, and we set up and we play. And my brother wasn't keen. Joe didn't want to do it, and I just had to overrule him. You know, I just go, Joe, listen, we need to get in here now because he wanted to come up on the Saturday. Hmm. Didn't you learn anything from the year before? You need to be here <laughs> yeah. before anyone else. The early bird. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> catches the worm. Catches the worm. So we were, and already there was other sounds setting up at the other end of Acklin Road, but we didn't want to go there anyway. We were the first ones to set up on Cambridge Gardens, outside number 37, perfect low wall pitch so we could put our speakers on the wall. Yes. Set the decks off the road, off the pavement, and then run the cable into the first floor. Yes, because they've each got a little, a small front garden in each That's one of right. those houses. Yeah, yeah. And some of them have got huge railings, big walls, and you yeah, can't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so but just rewind a tiny bit. So who bought the sound system? How did that come together? Uh, my brother built it. 
So yeah, he Joey, built it with Joey his... and, he, and his mates really from bare hands of, mm. you know, recycling before recycling was a thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. Anyone throughout an old TV, you'd go down to um, Portobello Market on Saturday, there's old TVs, yeah. stereograms. First thing that come out of them, take speakers out, take tweeters out. At school, school record player, take the turntable out, take the tweeters out, nick them yeah. from school. <laughs> um, and he's a, like a self-taught sound engineer. We often used to laugh at this. There's a thing in the black community, you know, because money was non-existent, everyone was poor. No one had money to go and buy kit. Mm. And you'd walk into these um, shops that that, that um, sold components, you know, speakers, mm. electronic shops. Mm. And you get these old boys in brown coats and you talk to them about, you know, what would happen if you join this transistor and that? And they, they go, sharp and take a breath. Oh, can't be done. And then my brother would go home and do exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> Wicked sound. Make it work. <laughs> Make it work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and a lot of sound systems got the same history. That's how a lot of them were built. We were only small. We were only... But but was it pivotal because you played the the big soul records of the day? The yeah, it was pivotal, and that was presumably just well, helped we to shape. There, when we went there in nineteen eighty, yeah, um, Nick, um, it was a, a a big deal to even put a non regular record on the turntable. Let right. me tell you, right? Um, <laughs> uh, because okay. the whole soundtrack of Carnival was soca, calypso, reggae, yeah. lovers rock, yeah. And I can't remember what record, but it was proper left, you know, and brand new. Something yeah. that I know no one had ever heard of. And I put this tune on and I think only me and my mate Stevie P, my MC, we were the only ones dancing to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and then we got bold and, and we played a couple. Well, I remember 1980, we were playing, or I was playing, Archie Bell mm-hmm. and the Drills, Sister Sledge, all the tunes that five years later would go on to be two-step anthems yes <laughs> as you know yes yes we're the fathers of two-step even before mm. they called it that mm. we played all of those records because i knew and i understood that mostly all the black girls in there were all into lovers rock they loved their reggae mm-hmm. and the only soul they'd go with is if it's slowed down you mm-hmm. know um well, love would, a soul. Well, it would always it would come as David Rodigan always said. It would it would come in the context of a smoky reggae club, and then yeah. it would just like be a switch it up moment. Yeah, when some when the DJ would <laughs> yeah. just when, play yeah, one yeah. of those, and, they, and <laughs> they would play in the reggae clubs. Then the obligatory soul record then was Nina Simone. My baby just don't care. Yeah, yawn. Mm. <laughs> but you know, I'd come there and I'd um, play Aretha. Yes, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd play Aretha Respect, you know, yeah. really rousing. Yeah, 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 and the ones You'd never dance. expect to hear that there. And suddenly, people come from, goodness, someone's playing this? Yeah. Who, who, who is this guy? Who is this sound? <laughs> right. You know, and, and then you were on the people, map. Yeah. Basically. Well, not then we were. No? Um, okay. But that first session was followed, <laughs> you know, got death threats, knife threats. Um, Why you get, what, knife threats because of your, your position? Because people wanted that, that spot? Or because of the music? Or because you were playing because Sister Sledge? Because we were playing music that, that, that wasn't because, deemed acceptable. Oh, I see. Right. It was yeah. just as a threat to the status quo, basically. Yeah, absolutely. We do. Yeah. There is this thread in, with our trailblazers, isn't there? We, you probably know Mike Pickering game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah. the death threat story yeah, yeah, when he played the Astoria, right? Because he was playing house music and yeah. people wanted to hear I got Red Roof. Yeah, I yeah. got the same death threat when I first played at the fridge, taking over 
over from Jay Strongman, I had to get a dozen bouncers to escort me out from <laughs> Brixton's Black Mafia. God, because you know. what, were you, what were you playing in that? Uh, because I wouldn't play any of the reggae because they thought a black guy coming right. in there to play. Right. <laughs> And they're making some requests, re- yeah. put, put some, some reggae, reggae on, put some of this on. Like, I'm like, not what, not what I do. Don't do it, yeah. Don't, don't do that. Wow. Um, so how about a a tune that you played at Carnival on your system? Yeah. Uh, not necessarily 1980, <laughs> but but maybe in one of the subsequent years. Yeah, but one that... that put you where you felt, right, we're, we're on the this map. This is us. This is us. We've, we've got this. Um, it'd either have to be um, Archie Bell, yeah. um, Don't Let Love Get You Down. Yeah. Or Sister Sledge thinking of you. Because uh, there was loads. I can remember playing um, uh, the one tune which was me, which I love, was Change, The Glow of Love. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, then let's play uh, Let's that. play, should play yeah. Change. That's yeah. wicked. Yeah. yeah. Let's, do, let's, let's because, hear that. Because I was a big fan of Luther. Yes. I've, I've known, been buying Luther records for five years. Yeah. Um, uh, and then I dare to play the full-length version. I had a Promo 12 then yeah. that I'd found. Um, and So that version's about nine or ten minutes long. Yeah. And I wouldn't take it off. Right, <laughs> just like, let it run. <laughs> just let it run, because then uh, when you played in sound clashes, you know, it'd get wheeled back. Mm. And then somebody else would come in and play. And I said, no, no, no. one's wheeling back this. Let it, I'm putting on the longest version. Let it talk, let it run. Say, it could be that, or a couple of years later... Um, when we played in the cage, horrible <laughs> memories. We played Planet Rock, right? Africa Bambata, I think, or one of them. Let's let's go with that that change. Yeah. Glow of love, man. Yeah. That's a wicked tune. Let's stick yeah. it on, shall we? Mm. Trailblazers, Norman J. Flowers blooming, morning dew, and the beauty seems to say it's a pleasure when you treasure all that's new and true and gay. Easy living, and we're giving what we know we're dreaming of. We are one, having fun, walking in the glow of love. Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer Originals. You've taught me a cultural phenomenon here, which I wasn't aware of, or which has only just dawned on me, and I'm just amazed that it's only just dawned on me, <laughs> like being a <laughs> DJ for many decades, is that you said there was a DJ and an MC and a selector. It was mm. a very triangular picture that you yeah. painted. I thought mm. the DJ was the selector. No, not necessarily. No. So you'd have somebody picking the records yeah, and then yeah. somebody different playing yeah, the records. Playing the records, yeah. Yeah, then you'd have the MC, and if you... Well, but that, that way inclined you'd have a vocalist. We used to have a singer as well. Briggy used to be used to sing over the instrumentals. Of, yeah, yeah, that of I get. Our reggae I, I, tunes and soul tunes. Yeah, I was yeah. always aware of you know the, like yeah. the PA yeah. singer, the, the uh, and of course the MC and the DJ. But I never thought I never knew that there was a separation between yeah, the DJ and the selector. This is where again, you know, I didn't need a selector because I was a selector. Right, exactly. <laughs> so you're you're so yeah. in effect you were you know really a trailblazer in that you folded mm. those two things together. Yeah. And we brought two turntables to Carnival, and we brought Technics. We were at the cutting edge of all the technology. Mm. And so, were you starting to mix records then, no, or just I waiting for no, the end of and then waiting play, for the end know? of the songs? But I had um, a young guy who's still with me today, Rudy. He was of that age, that generation of when electro records were first being played. You know, I'd bring Rudy along. He had only been about fourteen or fifteen then. Um, he just had a knack. He learned on our turntables at my mum's house. Um, 
And I went, right, Rudy, you can be our mixer and scratcher. Mm. <laughs> and he used to mix, not so much mix, but definitely scratching, cutting up records, 1981, 82 for us. We'd give him a little half hour slot. And as it got more popular, we'd let him do more. Um, so we covered all bases. You know, we were a sound system. We're DJ entertainers. We play music. We've got a singer who can sing over instrumentals. You know, uh, we've got a young kid who cuts and scratches, you know, pretty much like Saxon. Yep, you know, and all that sound, sound system, system. Yeah. yeah, you know, and and then how does it go from all of that into the sort of shaking finger pop here, and you find yourself playing warehouse mm. parties, and your demographic has changed. Yeah. You're not playing to just well, our initial your, fans are won over at Carnival, right, um, where people are first exposed to us. Um, you know, we came to Carnival first time in August 1980. Uh, we set up Kiss. In 1985. Yep. Um, so the first time anyone would have heard of us on, on the radio would have been Carnival 86. Mm-hmm. By then, I'm on Kiss, doing the original Rare Groove show and stuff like that. Um, and Kiss was still a Kiss pirate, a pirate, obviously, yeah. importantly. Yeah. yeah, the first one. It was a Kiss. lot different to what it is now. If <laughs> I don't young, know what it is now. If younger <laughs> listeners <laughs> might be listening to <laughs> so, but, Kiss right, <laughs> right now. This is Kiss FM 40 years ago. A little bit different, ago, yeah. So there's a little period yeah. there which I just want to cover. So sure. between 1980 and 1985, on yeah. the start of Kiss, hmm. you were you were in, in how the story that you just painted, you were yeah. basically playing out once a year. Yeah, So absolutely. what were you doing yeah. in between then? Um, trying to promote um, little gigs in church halls and stuff, um, putting on little parties and holding parties at my mum's house in my own house and at this time you, it's right of you to pick up on them because at that time um, saw the emergence of um, soul sound systems you know non-reggae sound systems mm. where the DJs would come with either one or two decks and hardly any reggae would, would be played all night long um, and one such sound system still plays at Carnival today, um, picked up on the, the emergence of the first wave of electro and hip-hop was Rap Attack. Uh-huh. Uh, um, there was Rap Attack there in, the West, in West London with us. There was... Mastermind, probably? The, Mastermind, yeah. Herbie and, and that, yeah. yeah. Holston yeah, definitely. Kind of guys. Glad you reminded me of that. Got yeah. to give, Her- give Herbie his, his due. Yeah. Because even though... Herbie's sound system at Mastermind, because I remember I remember checking them out in 79, 1980. Yeah. Had all the kit, but as far as I was concerned, no music. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, same like the other sound system there, 6x6. Six six. They couldn't touch me for music selection. Right. I, I knew that. Um, and I knew that our sound would sound better than them if we had a clash or a contest. Good times would... Yeah, we'll triumph. We'll rinse any of them out. Except herpes. Okay. Very quick one. Yeah. Were you doing anything non-musically at this time to bring uh, a couple of quid in? Uh, what was I doing? I spent years sort of... Um, I was hustling records. I was a, like a one-man right. record hustler. I'd stand outside Bluebird Records. Yeah, and just sell and, stuff. And, and, and sell stuff. Yeah. yeah. Like Rodigan did, yeah. funnily mm, enough, yeah. with his little... Hold yeah. all full because of Because I was going to New York um, um, every yeah. year. Right. 
from 1979 through to about 1987. I, I've spent extended periods there. Yeah. So I was there at so very was, important very, time. Very musically yeah. dominated yeah. thing. So you tapped, you built a crowd through Carnival, and was it that then, yeah, let's, let's, so, and then we had Kiss as a pirate. Yeah. Uh, and then I just want to talk about, like, yeah. The, Which opened me up to even mm. bigger and more diverse audience. Great. And was that how something like Shake and Finger Pop came yeah. together? So yeah. that's. Tell us what that was. Mm. Well, Shake and Finger Pop was the natural or the logical extension to the house parties that I was doing. Right. We were doing house parties since the mid-70s to the mid-80s. Um, but I kind of sh- shied away from it, especially from the, the Deptford Fire, mm. which really, that was in 1981, where 13 black people got roasted to death in a party in, in uh, New Cross. And a few things like that were, were, were happening and, uh, and we were, you know, on the black scene, so big, so popular. Um, I'd run out of houses um, to do. You know, mm. We were doing bigger houses in Notting Hill, Chiswick, huge house parties. Um, but I didn't want to do them anymore. I just, the next stage was to find a space, um, an illegal space. Um, and were you being paid to do this, or were you doing no, this for love? You're no, being paid in beer I had and no food money. Or? I was unemployed in those years. It was a hustle. Um, but I was driven by I wanted to put on a massive party, you know, an illegal party. Uh, and because I'd been to a couple of smaller um, parties, I think at this time I just discovered um, Noel and Morris Watson mm. playing at Battlebridge Road. Yeah. And my ears were so to the ground, I knew every illegal run-ins, whether it was on the white scene or the black scene, I knew, you know, they were doing their their thing in Battlebridge Road and Funkadelic, a sound system from, from East London, were doing massive parties in the squats at, um, uh, down um, Camberwell. Yep. In Camberwell Grove, mm. because that's where the term roadblock comes from. <laughs> you know, um, it was what a year that the, the Funkadelic just block up the road. They did a you know roadblock party <laughs> in the squat at Camberwell, and I, I kept. They did a series of parties there. I kept hearing on the phone. I thought, you know what, I need to get myself over there because that time I'd never even been to Camberwell. Mm. I need to get over and see what this is all about. Mm-hmm. And I remember pulling up at the bottom of um, Campbell Grove and all the black boys just got out, left all their cars. The whole street was just roadblocked with cars. Massive party going on in there. And I get in there and I think, wow, but we could do it better than this. Because my, my first thing was always about, you know, the sound system, which, no. Nah. And I stayed there three or four hours, music selection. Nah, that's not, not really happening. Um <laughs> But the fact that they they pulled it off, that's yeah. what I was like, they've pulled it off and they've got loads of white people to come to a dance like this. Because I always strove to have a mixed crowd, not just, you know, Good Times was essentially, you know, its roots are in the black community, but Shake and Finger Pop was... You know, just was broader? To, yeah, it was much broader. And, and who? so who were the key players in the Shake and Finger Pop um, equation? Myself and Joe, we just reinvented ourselves <laughs> okay yeah just basically uh, where, does, where does where does judge jules fit into uh, all of that well i met judge jules at a huge illegal party um that he and his family function crew yeah um were, were playing at under king's cross station yeah <laughs> it's all knocked down now yeah and two massive tunnels um, yeah soul to soul in on one side yeah um and 
shake and, and uh, family function in the other side. Of the okay. It's weird because these two tunnels, there must have been about two, two and a half thousand people there. One tunnel, no lights on. <laughs> Music blasting out, mixture of soul, reggae. And the other tunnel, all the lights are on. Um, new wave playing um, and early house music. Uh, no, not, no, this is not before early house. No, okay. This is a crap hip hop. Okay, um, you know, hotel motel rap. Okay, um, was going on down there, and cause, and I'm I'm outside, and I get to the door, and um, I am Norman. That you? And I looked up. I couldn't believe it. It was Jazzy B's older brother. Pops was on the door. And that's when he told me, yeah, there's a huge... First thing, I said, how did you get this space? How did you pull this off? And uh, my big question, who's behind it? I need to know who's behind it. Because already, I said, I need to find out whoever's this, because I need to do a party with whoever did this. Yeah. Um, and I found out it was um, Jules and his mate, Mark Rayner. Mark was a pal of Jazzy. That was a connection. Right. Um, Mark found the venue. Mm-hmm. Jazzy rented him, <laughs> skanked him basically, um, uh, gave him the, the remnants of Salt of Soul, what was left over, um, and it was never going to sound as good as Salt of Soul's rig mm-hmm. in there, and it broke down because when I got in there, there was no music ah. <laughs> uh, in there, and I and Femi was in there, yes, and Femi came up to me and with a wry smile, and I went, Femi, who's behind this? He went out, family function. I went, do you know them? He said, yeah, I know Jules. And this is Mark. So Femi gave me the introduction right. to Jules. And first thing I said to him is, I looked at him. He was in despair, almost tears. I said, you do a party me, with me. This will never happen. In meaning, yeah. we'll give you yeah. a proper, proper rig. Yeah. This will never happen. So Jules was all right. You know, um, he said, so we swapped numbers. And a week or so later, he gave me a call. He said, Norman Jorna, I've got another venue in mind. Um, so I went up to his flat in Kentish Town, then and we started talking. He said, we got this, sussed this lovely place on the river at Southwark. I didn't even let him finish. I was out the door, in my car, <laughs> yeah. straight over there to scout it out, to have a look. As soon as I come over Southwark Bridge, I don't think it was the right place that Jules found I saw this place. I was instantly... This is where that party's going to be. Bear Wolf, Southwark. Um, and and it, it, all, it all, you know, and it all yeah. expanded from so, there. So, that, so, that, so mm. then in this era, we had the birth of warehouse party culture yeah. in London. With, and, but the, the important thing about that was the soundtrack. It yeah. wasn't about jazz, funk, soul in little boxes. When we did the flyer, there was no hint of any music being played, no hint of DJs. Mm. That was my, my idea. Mm-hmm. It was all... This is where the underground. No one's supposed to know who's behind it. Yep. And I didn't want anyone to know that I was behind it because I didn't want the rougher ends of my black crowd coming there. So, you know, and I had a lot of mates from football. I had a lot of mates who were punks, a lot of mates who were rockabillies from all walks. And I just let everyone know I'm having a party in a massive warehouse in Southwark. Mm. All I did on the fly was shake and finger pop, family function, party. So that means... <laughs> You know, bring your own, I remember, bring your own beer, bring your own drink, bring yeah. your own drugs. So, and we had close to 3,000 people show up at that party. 1986, the summer, Six. World Cup summer. Okay. Yeah. All right. Have we got a tune from that one? Yes, I got a tune from, from that one. Um, it would be the, f- the first house tunes. 
right um then because we played a mixture from rock and roll to acid house right um and on that party who played with me because i love the way he played was i invited jonathan moore yes cold cut half cold, cold cut, cut of course yeah well he was mm. meltdown then yes yeah jonathan moore came and played with me on one floor jules played on another floor and we gave the third floor to a band to, from my way um mates of mine who had guitars and that who we now know as the brand new heavies right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah and a very young Jamiroquai was there climbing all over the walls. Fantastic. <laughs> so what, what tune are we going to gonna drop um, to the soundtrack? It's either Funkin' for the Drums again or Let the Music Use You. Uh, we'll do Night Writers. Yeah, Let the yeah, Music Use yeah. You. That's a, that's a wicked tune. Because we were playing that, I know, a full year before or two years before it became popular again yeah, yeah. maybe because because you, you couldn't get it because that summer i bought my first house records um couldn't play them on the radio but could play them at shaking finger pop because mm. basically the music canvas was this wide mm. northern soul house music reggae hip-hop and the clash got it <laughs> You know, I could play my Clash records, I could play my Small Faces records, I could play my Thin Lizzy records against Luther, <laughs> Marvin, <Yeah. laughs> and, and it was proper eclectic. All right, yeah. all right. Well, well, we'll listen to that too now, Night Writers, letting the music use you, and then, and then once we've heard it, I've got uh, another important question for you. So sure. let's, let's hear it now. Trailblazers, Norman Jay. Night writers, let the music use you. Quick question: hmm. Rare Groove. That yeah. to that term. You yeah. were Mr. Rare Groove. Yeah. You were the guy who was who who, mm. who became on the radio. Um, it, it grew out of the radio uh, on my show on Kiss from 1985 to 1987, called the Original Rare Groove Show. Okay, tongue in cheek. But I called it that because a lot of the records, or most of the records, they weren't rare. But you just couldn't go into black market or go into your regular record mm. shop and get it. If mm. you were discerning with a little bit of help, a little bit of luck, you know, or go into record and tape at the right ex- at the right time, mm-hmm. you could get those records. A few of them were hard to get. And and, and mm. was that genre of seventies sort of funk known as rare groove before you put the name on your radio show? No, it wasn't. It so was it was you seventies funk. You put you put that flag yeah, in the sand. I became synonymous with it. Yeah. Um, wasn't me. No. <laughs> It was the the media that was writing about it in a bid to describe it or explain it. Said, this is Rare Groove. This, this, is, what Rare Groove. this is what Norman J plays. Got it. This is Rare Groove. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'll roll with it because at that party, um, I can remember um, we started off warming up playing all the regular black records of the day, all the sort of Shirelle, yeah. you know, all of the, the, that kind of Emma, music yeah. day. And it wasn't working with the kind of crowd that we had in there. Yeah. And... And my brother, Joey, said to me, Norman, this music isn't working. The dance is it's grinding to a halt. Mm. He said, why don't you get the records? I had all my seven-inch records yeah. and all my James Brown, all my funk stuff, you know, in the, in the, in the van. Yeah. I went, Joe, go and get those records. And as soon as I put on Ruben Wilson and got to get your own, the place exploded. Bang, yeah. Exploded. 
And I thought, well, if you like this, I've got thousands of these records. And then you were onto Maceo and the Max, yeah, probably, or Jackson Sisters. Yeah, yeah, and so it. Yeah. So and no, that was it. And that yeah. was a, an amazing. No, you're right on it, Nick. That's exactly. I was, yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> in and around. <laughs> I've got to say, shout out to Sean P at yeah. the at the record and tape exchange in Nottingham. Yeah, you, sure. you gave you yeah. gave made him a very busy man, yeah. basically by <laughs> co- by coining that. Yeah. But can I sorry? Can I switch it up very sure quickly? Because you you've, yeah. you've mentioned football now three or four times. Yeah. So it's obviously something that's really close to your heart. Yes. Uh, genuinely, I want to know. So is this QPR or are you? It started uh, off at Queens Park Rangers because they were the local team to me. Uh, but, you know, I, 1966, World Cup Willie. Remember England winning the World Cup. Um, 1967, I don't really understand football, but I play it all day, 30 aside, in the park, all day, every day in a row. <laughs> uh, as kids did then. And then, I was 10, 1967. First All-London Cup final, Chelsea. Uh, v Tottenham and at that time I played number 8 inside right for my school Jimmy Greaves was my absolute idol uh, so it was Tottenham so you me. became a Spurs fan yeah I became a Spurs fan but oh I was, fantastic I, didn't, I wasn't able to go over there for a couple of years um, because A uh, it was so far away um, and all my mates everybody supported QPR or Chelsea especially in and around Grove and everyone was like QPR and I used to go to QPR with with, with my mates uh, but I had a relative once I she was I had a relative that lived in in um, Enfield or Edmonton Edmonton Green and then one day she visited and she said she lives in Edmonton I'm like my ears pricked up sure that's near Tottenham <laughs> surreptitious look on the A to Z yeah it's only a bus ride so I begged my mum to let me go for a stopover for a sleepover at her house and of course my mum let me go the Victoria Line wasn't even built yeah then you know I might as well have been travelling to, to, to Mars, such was <laughs> the, the, you know, the distance. But I made my way there um, to, to, to Spurs uh, against Liverpool, 1968, October the 19th. And you saw Jimmy Greaves play? Uh, he scored twice. That oh, day. brilliant. What a God. <laughs> uh, so football is something that's very close to Nick's yeah, yeah. He still plays it. So and I'm, became, a Spurs, I'm a Spurs fan too. I, I, became, I never talk uh, about it. I became an avid Spurs fan. And because my dad worked... He was a civil engineer on London Transport. Um, they don't do that now, London Transport. But but back in those days, uh, because of my dad was top of his grade, you know, um, he was able to get um, special tickets, family tickets. Uh, we had they were called privilege cards, so we could travel on the underground as kids for two p or five p, and pay a fraction of the British Rail costs mm. to get anywhere if you travelled on British Rail. So, of course, I had my pass and I used it to maximum effect. So by 1970, I went, I'd been to uh, my first away game at West Brom, the Hawthorns. Never forget that. We lost 3-1. And then realised I'd opened a Pandora's box (laughs) with this ticket. I could go anywhere. So I started to follow Spurs all over the country from about 69, 70 season. 
for years. Wow, it sounds like you remember the scoreline to every yeah, game. Yeah, no, I don't actually. <laughs> I only, it's only fresh in my memory because, because of the book and because I've yes. been recently asked a lot of questions um, mm. over that re-Spurs from Spurs forums and that's so yeah. all, all of that fresh in my head. But moving that on just a little bit, it meant that I was able to go to um, northern clubs that I'd only previously read about. So I made my first visit to Wigan Casino in 1977. Ah. Um, and then early in 1978, I made my first trip up to Blackpool Mecca. And did you com- did you combine that up with football? So a bit with of football, football in yeah, the yeah, afternoon yeah, yeah. and then you'd take <laughs> off. It. Oh, that's yeah, great. Because that season, Spurs got relegated. Right. Spurs were in the second division. Right. And... Uh, when they were, I looked at the fixtures. First fixture I looked at, Blackpool v Spurs. Right, yeah, I, I booked that. Yeah, I'm doing that. Okay. First time I'd ever been to Blackpool, and I can remember my mate Keith, who ran the coaches up there, came on the bus with a duffel bag. And we got duffel bag. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> and I remember um, <laughs> the coaches were parked outside of the ground <laughs> because Blackpool Football Ground used to be across the car park from the, the Blackpool Mecca. Okay. Mm. It was just under the car park, separated right. the two. Right. And I remember all getting on the coaches on the way back and I went to grab my bag he went where are you going I stand up for the club and I remember the whole coach going you must be out of your mind what you're staying up here for music because they didn't understand you know yeah. this is something I always wanted to do on my own yeah as I did a lot of those trips on, on my own and I stayed because the club didn't open till one in the morning right so I kept a low profile I wasn't a drinker so I knew steer clear of pubs and I'll be all right so I hung about until about half twelve, got in the queue, got talking to people. They were really friendly. To the, what do you mean you come all the way up for London for this? Yeah, actually, yeah, I did. And um, made friends from that era, which are still friends to this oh, day. brilliant. And yeah. this would be a, have been a, a Northern Soul club? Um, it was a Northern Soul. Well, when I went to Blackpool, it was just at the time when... They they did, made a conscious decision to leave the sixties and old stuff behind, and start to play what you know we now know what I loved and it was New York disco. Mm-hmm. Um, but they'd uh, they played different tracks, but because I liked both, because I was a music man, so I liked the stuff that we were playing in London, which they never played up north, and vice versa. So I never had a problem with it, never had an issue with it, like the whole thing the northern soul versus jazz funk thing mm. i liked both mm. so you know I... cool um so then what i'm interested in looking at now is when you embraced uh house music and and your your legendary high on hope mm. residency so that came uh post the big rare groove yeah uh, sort of uh, yeah boom and then yeah. of course acid, acid House essentially exploded mm. uh, and records mm. like Night Writers came mm. through and mm. actually briefly on that one am I right in thinking this sound system your sound system was used at Shum yeah so <laughs> yeah. so that's another link Danny Rampling another former guest yeah. here yeah. How, and a lot of raves as well and a, oh, okay. yeah, Sunrise so, um, Biology yeah Good Times was the sound system used because we had the rig right you know and it's funny because so a lot you, of those early you, promoters yeah. were schooled at my show and finger pop gigs right and they went on to scale it up and monetize it yeah. when we did ours it was for altruistic reasons artistic reasons because ours were very sort of right on and trendy and arty mm. uh, but when this that generation came 
they saw money, profit, and scaling it up. Yeah, and they did. And so you you, you had an involvement in all in all of that. And then and then uh, when what when were the high on hope years? Yeah, nineteen. It was same time as the summer of love, second summer of love. Um, 88, 89, because basically, um, and you were, you were the, the, the acid yeah. house phenomenon was was really a white thing. Um, the high and hope thing was truer to its black, gay, um, um, church disco roots, right? Um, but the acid house thing became phenomenal, you yes. know. Um, but ours, which was, I never had a problem with that because it meant ours stayed pure. We were mm. very purist. Um, we were playing the house records. And, like, like, you know, Frankie Fonset, who was my original DJ partner then, we were playing Tears a year before you heard it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because um, we, and I say we, Frankie and I, but mostly me, knew of people like Tony Humphreys, Louis Vega, could, yeah. could name drop. All of those when they were not struggling DJs, but only confined to the boroughs. Yeah. You know, and they'd never traveled, never played out, you know. Mm. Um, and Danny Ramplin and myself, you know, were the first to bring an American DJ to play in this country. Mm. That was Tony Humphreys. Um, I'll briefly give you the story of how that happened. For years, from about 1984, 85, I always used to make a special trip to New Jersey and go to Tony Humphrey's um, club in East Orange called the Zanzibar. And every year they used to have a talent contest and they'd have the heats and I'd go there for the finals. And there'd this one cold, it was freezing cold night, full of snow. Um, I go in the Zanzibar, which at that time was like 99.9% black. It was in the ghetto, really rough part of East Orange, you know, proper drugs, guns, lots of people, murders there. It was a really diabolical place to go. I go in there um, one night, me and my cousin Terry, a native New Yorker, walk to the front in the DJ booth. I spot two white people. I think, that's unusual, but for, well, that's normal where I come from in England. Can I, but, can I just check? One of them wasn't me, was it? No, it wasn't. Because <laughs> no, I've, I've been to Zanzibar. No, no. <laughs> this is when no one had been to Zanzibar. This is before I got this there. Is before you Clearly. got there. And those two people was Danny Ramplin and Jenny. Okay. Yeah, Danny yeah. and Jenny were, were, were in there. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa. What we looked at each other and thought, wow, this is unbelievable. And the first thing I said to Danny... It came straight into my head straight away. We got to bring him to Got to in. do this. Got yeah, to do yeah, it, bring him yeah, yeah. over. Yeah. Um, and the winner of that talent show that night, of the night we were there, was Blaze. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I said to Tony, listen, we'd love to get... He, Tony didn't even have a passport then. Right. And I got talking to him because he was really close with my cousin Terry, mm. who's a you know, Brooklyn native born and bred. Yeah. You know, Terry was my way in to, mm. to the ghetto. Terry mm. knew them all. Mm -mm. You know, T. Scott, mm. you know, all Mancuso. Terry knew them all. This mm. is my cousin. Mm -mm -mm. Um, so Terry goes, Norman Stray, he's, he's all right. Yeah. This is my cousin from London. He's running things in yeah, London. He's, he's all right. And if you, you know, go with him. So just on Terry's recommendation, Tony went, right, so... Met up with Danny when we got back. Yeah. And we said, all right, Dan, let's share the cost. And let's do and, this. And let's, let's do it. Spread the word. So I had him, because High and Hope was on the Thursday night. So we brought Tony, Tony over for about a week. Yep. We ha I had him at High and Hope on the Thursday. 
Danny had him at Shum on the Saturday. Yeah. And I think they took him, I think Mike Pickering had him up at Hacienda. Sounds about Am right. Am I right? It sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Good. And then he was phenomenal. He blew everyone away. Yeah. Which I knew he would. But, you know, I'd known Tony for like five years before that. Was a big fan. Yeah. And with house music, he was, yeah, he was an influence on me because... Um, he was still then using vinyl and reel-to-reel, which sure. is what we were using at High and Hope. Yeah, yeah. So we could get... Reel-to-reel was our dubs. Got it. You know, going back to the reggae thing of having exclusives. Yeah. You know, so I went almost overnight from being exclusively rare yeah. to exclusively upfront. <laughs> um, interesting. It's yeah. an interesting interesting switch. But I took a lot of and, flack and a, then. Yeah, well, that's, flack now, now that's, that. Yeah. that is the yeah. thing of being a bit brave. You yeah. played the music that you believed in. Yeah. People probably were turning up expecting yeah. you to draw for... I told them, a, no James Brown here. Yeah. 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 So what is the rec- <laughs> what's the record that, that, um, that embodies that time then? The house record, the early house record. Um, tears, Frankie Knuckles, without a shadow of doubt. Of course. Um, I had a, an exclusive of that um, because Frankie Fonset was working with Frankie Knuckles. Um, he was Frankie spent six months in Chicago, 85, 86. Um, and Frankie came back with reels of finished, unfinished, but unreleased stuff. And Nick was there, so Nick will know, Nick will be able to verify. We were playing, and I had access, because of my connection with Tony Humphreys, of all the Blaze stuff, all the Adiva stuff, even before mm. they had record deals. Mm. I helped them get record deals in the UK. And you're playing this off a quarter-inch tape. I'm playing tape. this quarter-inch tapes. I'm cutting <laughs> my own dubs. Yes, of course. Um, all the Chucker Khan remixes, when the first big remixes of Chucker w- w- was done, Danny D, you know, bought the lacquers. They were still warm when he brought them to me. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> and razor blade and sticky tape. Yeah. All right, then. Yeah, well, let's, so, let's yeah. listen to this, and then we're in the home straight. Trailblazers. Norman J. Okay, I just want to, I want to, well, rewind and forward wind at the mm. same time, really, by going back to the carnival. Mm. So you're, you have this unique perspective of what has become the biggest carnival in the world. Am I right yeah, in saying yeah, that? Yeah. And you've witnessed it go from just people in the neighbourhood mm. to this just stratospherically huge mm. phenomenon and like what was what was the what was the real golden time for you what's the time that you enjoyed the most you know was it when nobody was dancing and you were getting them to dance or was it when you had a massive crowd no the early 90s when we when we moved um our spot it was really dangerous but i was there for like 10 years on cambridge gardens outside number 37 from 1980 to 1990 um, one of the years we went in the cage, huge riot ensued in there. All our gear got ruined, nicked, smashed up, and I became really disillusioned with it. So in 1990, I said, you know what, I ain't doing this. I go to Carnival in 1990, which was a wrong, wrong thing to do. And I go and support the only other credible soul sound then. Um, they were just emerging, and it was um, Ashley Beadle and Cecil with right. shock. Um, and you went as a DJ to play no, on their no, sound no, system? No, I didn't. I, went as, I just went as a spectator. I sat on right. the wall opposite, on the braze wall on the pillar, uh-huh. 
uh, with everybody going, Norman, where's good times? How come you're not doing this? And I knew, and I walked away feeling so frustrated. I mean, respect it to Cecil and Ashley and all them, but the shock were like our baby brothers. Mm. You know, this is the generation that came after us. Yeah, there you is know, no... They didn't, you know... There is no carnival we without good times. We spent 10 years building up what we, we, we did. And I, I just went... But there was a lot of change going on, sea change going on then in Carnival Day. Carnival was looking to expand. So I'm, you know, I was a lifelong member of BASE, the British Association of Sound Systems, which uh, was uh, like a, a sound system union that we had in Carnival that only the sound systems that played at Carnival could be part of. And at that time, there was 56 of us. So can you imagine 56 sounds all crammed into one room with, you know, differing <laughs> yeah. Yeah, opinions. opinions and egos bigger than this room? It was unreal. And when they suggested in that meeting that my dad came with me, because it was so important when they were announcing the, the new sites for the expanded carnival, um, and I'd made up my mind and persuaded everybody, no, where we are, Cambridge Gardens is, is history, it's toast. The only way we're going to really make our name and be judged by what we do is move away from the epicentre of carnival, which, I, which is what I wanted to do, move away from the trouble, away from the violence, find somewhere new and fresh and start again, somewhere much safer where the posses and the tear gas merchants don't come anywhere near us. So we had the meeting and I was... That time, Sainsbury's had just opened at the top of Labrick mm. and I'd had my eye on the Sainsbury site. Um, if they ever opened it, that's one I go there. So get to the meeting, and I asked about the Sainsbury site, and I was gutted to learn that Mastermind had already secured it. Uh, <laughs> what, the car park? The car park. <laughs> I was absolutely gutted. But yeah. you, were, yeah. you were able to, to get... I come out of the meeting, because the meeting used to be at the top of the halfpenny steps there, there's carnival offices, absolutely fuming, thinking, what am I going to do now? Nowhere to go, because I didn't want to go back to Cambridge Gardens. And I'd had my heart set on there. And I turned left out of the building where we had the meeting, stormed down the halfpenny steps, walked down Southern Row, and I had a, an epiphany moment. I stood there and looked. What about this? This is exactly where we're going to be. And I remember having a furious row with my brother. Again, my brother thought I was out of my mind. Why do you want to come here? This is like leaving London and setting up in Newcastle. No one will ever come to this park carnival. <laughs> Nobody will ever. Th- and I remember, and my dad, my brother will bear this out. I said, You watch, within in five years, I will have this place roadblocked. Yeah, you know? and you did. And we did it in three. Where did, <laughs> where did, where did the bus I thing come, come the, from? You had a big double-decker the bus. The double-decker bus came from when I did the first cream fields. Right. Um, I played at cream fields and they had me in like a VIP bus. And you thought, hey, and this it, is kind of cool. Hang on, oh. And in my mind, I thought it'd be a coach. Oh, Because right. in those days, DJs played out of coaches, open the window. Yeah. yeah. Didn't, had no idea it'd be a double-decker bus. Huh. And I, I come over the, the, the hill, walking towards the thing, and I see this bus and I just thought, that can't be it. In the rain, there was nobody around it. The field was empty, and she went because it's a VIP area. Mm. But normally, you're playing in there, and I went, absolutely. This is exactly what I need for carnival. And I ran around like a headless chicken. Who's in charge of this bus? Da, 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 da. Yeah. This bus is wasted here. It's, yeah. It was at Creamfields. Yeah, completely. I said, I know where I could put this bus. I need this bus at Nightingale Carnival. Yes. Um, and I got phone numbers. I was harassing people for weeks. Who's got this bus? Mm. Um, they didn't get it for me. So I had to rent another 
bus because we were limited by space because every year my uncle, my dad and a couple of people would come and build us a little wooden riser stage yeah. um, and it was encroaching into the road. So like a block of flats, if you've got to expand, go up. Sure. And a bus seemed a logical thing. It was it. such a simple idea. I'm into London buses anyway. Yeah. Put a bus there, we'll play on the top, leave all the equipment and the safety and the sponsors downstairs. And it, the rest is history. Rest an, is an, history. An, an, yeah. enormous so the bus part. comes in in 1991. Yeah. Our first year. And I remember the big, that was so hot that summer. There was probably about no more than 200 people. No one could find us. No one knew where we were. No matter how much time I spent on the radio that year telling people, good times has now moved. We're in Cambridge Gardens. No. Because we were uh, the first people to move out there. Well, it took all good things, all good things and take time. And the big tune was Kim Sims. That's, that year was the year of Steve Silk Hurley mixes. Yeah. Oh, I loved Kim Sims' record. I must have played it about half a dozen times that day Yeah, in, in the sun. <laughs> Too blind to see it. And, uh, well, I tell you what, let's, we'll stick that on quickly and then we'll, then we'll yeah. probably draw to, to, a, to a conclusion. Yeah. You can bring it up to date, Nick. I don't know where I am now. <laughs> <laughs> Trailblazers. Norman Jay. So you're still there. Are you still in that spot now? With no, the, on the uh, double on, on the bus. Where no, are you we, at Carnival we, now? We, well, I'm not at Carnival. I haven't been since uh, 2013. Was the last year that I did it. Really? Can I just assumed yeah. that you were still there. Yeah, but again, you know, just as Carnival migrated, you know, three thousand miles, and <laughs> um, we've migrated seven miles up to um, Alexandra Palace. Right. And I think that's going to be our new home. No police. No hassle. Toilets, safety, mm. families. So on Bank Holiday weekend, you play in Ali Pali. Yeah, we did it for the first time last uh, this year. Yeah, seven thousand people showed up. Um, an amazing, hard-standing ground. We put the bus there, and so you do your own Notting Hill Carnival outside yeah. Notting Hill. <laughs> well, it's, it's good times, but you know, we hopefully, you yeah. know, we, we we want to build it up over the next few years. Um, Put live music, because that was always a frustrating thing for me. You know, had we had the space there, you'd have seen Jamiroquai long before he had it. Mm, <laughs> you know, mm. you'd, you'd have seen the brand new heavies before. You know, friends of mine who were in the ground. I had nowhere to put live things. We weren't even allowed to do PAs. Yeah. Um, but we kept it pure there because I was inundated from DJ. Oh, come Norman, can we play Carnival? But I said, you have to understand, you know, that weekend, it's about our sound. This is our tradition. Good times. Not about DJs. DJs work 51 weeks of the year. You can always, when you go away, all you do is carry your record box. We have to build this thing. We have to set it up. And when you walk away with your record box, in the rain or in the cold, at three o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday morning when people are long gone, we're there. We've got to break it down, pack it away, clean it all up. Mm. That's what the sound system means. Yeah. You know, there is no. You know, and, and Joey was absolute about that. I think we only ever had, you know, and I had every DJ in the world asking me to play because it was an amazing thing to do. But um, in the few guests that we had there, I had Giles there a couple of years. Peterson. Which was, Giles Peterson, which was brilliant. Who, who, of course, quick segue here, mm. we haven't even touched on, on <laughs> this, but you were part of Talking, Talking Loud. Loud. Yes. Of course. Working yes. alongside Giles, yeah. bringing through... 
you know, yeah. multiple acts. Yeah, and great that, time. That was yeah, an incredible doing, part of your, your career. And, and I mean, and you've remixed records yeah. and you've, you know, you've done and travelled the world. It's yeah. uh, it's amazing. We, we It feels like we probably could do another, another 90 minutes. We should minutes. probably do a part Tell two. Tell me this should <laughs> <part> <laughs> <two>. <laughs> Folks, can we, there will be a part yeah, two. Yeah, we, well, you're always welcome. All right, yeah, so let's draw this to a close and let's promise to do a part two then. I'm talking to two pals who I love dearly and got the most respect and oh, who know who share my history so yeah. there has to be a part two alright ok All right. we will, we'll, we will we will do deal. So, but ahead of ahead of part two we've got to ask the, the classic question Eddie yeah the classic question which we, is that if where, it's not if but when yeah. the aliens get here when the aliens get so, here so I mean but, you know beyond that we don't know what they're going to say but we're, we're conjecturising that they're they're building some kind of a super highway through this solar system and they're, they're looking to kind of like uh, you know they're uh, surveying it mm. uh, and they you know do they destroy us or do they destroy the moon or, or Mars? What's the tune that would you would say to play to stop them to from this. destroying us? Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Because you make it feel sexy. Simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Marvin Gaye is asking you the question. What's going on? Yeah. It's... Whoever comes and takes us over, <laughs> and then this question is asking you. What is going on? Yeah, <laughs> the perfect tune. The perfect tune. Let's let's. Uh, should we should we stick it on now or, or? Yeah, I think that's that's got that's the cherry on the cake. Mm. Okay. Of, of part one, and with a tease that we're going to have uh, Norma Jay in for part two, and and uh... there'll be another one in part two. Okay. Into, into the twenty first century. Okay. This one was summing up the, the you know the, yeah. the 20th century. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. But I will pick you out in part two, I'll pick you out twenty first century. All right, okay. Before we Done. play it, all the best with everything. Yeah. You keep Thanks, flying Nick. the flag for yeah. this incredible music. Your book is out. Mm. Tell us about your book briefly. Yes, uh, Mr. Good Times. Yeah. Um it's not a litany of of famous friends and parties and, and people I've met. It's about the Norman Jay, the regular guy who had regular interests. Um, and his struggle yeah. um, against sort of a, a racist regime, oppression, uh, loads of obstacles, mm. and triumphing in the end. Great. All right. Well, that that's a essential reading for anybody who's who's interested in uh, in the kind of stories that we've been we've been talking about today. Of course. Brilliant. So thank, thank you, so, thank much. you so much, Norman. We'll see you again soon. Mate. Thank you. Take sir. care. All right. Trailblazers. Trailblazers. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.